So here we are, the first Sunday of the new year. And I'm guessing that most, if not all of you, have already cleaned up all your Christmas decorations and put all those things away. And you're started off into whatever this new year is going to bring for you. If you haven't yet put your Christmas stuff away, um, that's a bit strange, um, I'll just say. But I'm not here to judge. You know, I was thinking as we were putting away our Christmas things, I wondered how many of us in this room have nativity sets that were a bit off this Christmas. You know, you picture the typical nativity scene, and you've got the baby in the manger and Mary and Joseph close by. Maybe you've got an angel present over the rooftop, and you know, you've got a donkey and a camel, maybe some cows, whatever you have around them. And let's be honest for a moment, how many of you have three men with crowns on their heads also standing over, bowing down, leaning in to the baby Jesus? How many of you have those guys right there at your nativity set? Now again, I'm not judging, and, and I'm just simply here to say, in the interest of historical and biblical accuracy, you, you might want to place them somewhere else. I mean, I, I know the purpose of your nativity set is not to create a living scene necessarily, but I think back to when I was a, a youth rector in a small Methodist church in, in North Carolina way back in the day, and one of our ministries every year was to do a living Christmas scene, a living nativity set, and I was one of those wise men dressed like a king with this big plastic crown on, and it was my responsibility to hold the, I guess it's a rein, I'm not sure, the rope attached to a camel. That was when I first got my taste of camels, by the way, of how utterly unpleasant they are <laughs> as animals. And I can remember sitting there feeling this sash around my neck getting tighter and tighter and tighter. And I'm standing there not knowing why. And then I looked over the camel and it was halfway down his throat. He was just sucking this thing right off my, my neck. But I digress. But in your nativity set, again, there are some things we can quibble over. I mean, they're, they're not significant. Uh, again, I didn't know these things had I not gone to Israel a number of times to find out that that manger that you place baby Jesus in made of wood with the little X-shaped legs is probably not accurate. Those were stone. And the sort of the makeshift barn with the thatch roof, that, that's probably not accurate either because it was really far more than likely a cave. But the wise men, that one I think we can quibble over. Again, because we see the story in Matthew chapter 2 of these men journeying from a long distance. And by the time they get there, Jesus is one or two years old. I mean, they walked a long way. So if you're going to include them in your nativity set, the very least you can do is put them on the other side of the room <laughs> or the other end of the house and, and explain to the kids that, okay, here are the wise men. They're getting ready to begin their journey. They're over here. But if your nativity scene is, besides that, in all other ways, correct, I would be willing to venture a strong guess that every one of us in this room was missing a very important biblical element to our nativity set. And honestly, I would not have thought of this myself had, had I not read this article earlier in the month of December. A guy by the name of Andy Addis works for North American Mission Board, and he wrote an article about what's missing in our nativity scenes. Any idea what it is? A dragon. How many of you have a dragon in your nativity scene? Add that right in there with the little animals and the baby and the hay. But the biblical basis for that is solid. We actually find this in Revelation chapter 12, verses 3 and 4. 
Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems, or crowns. And his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Listen to verse 4. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. I mean, right there, at the birth of Jesus, is a satanic presence ready and waiting to try to undo all the good that God is bringing into the world in Christ. To try, if he were able, to eliminate the source of salvation for all people. He hates God. He hates God the Father. He hates God the Son. And he hates those that God intends to make his own people. So wherever you see evil in this world today that seems unexplainable, malevolent to a degree that just bypasses any sort of explanation, know that Satan is there. Satan is behind that. He wars against the gospel. He wars against God, and he wars against God's people, and he has from the beginning of history. And we see in this story the beginnings of uh, what we'll see develop a little bit more next week in the second part of chapter 2, how he works through an evil man named King Herod to try to accomplish his purposes. It reminds us that Satan is real and evil is real. And we have a real enemy in this world, a real kingdom of darkness to be overcome. But it's also a reminder to us that he who was born that day in the manger was more than a mere child, more than a symbolic bringer of peace. Can't we all just get along? Can't we all just love one another and have peace with one another? No, he who was born that day was sufficient enough that all the evil in this world conspired to destroy him and defeat him, but they could not. He who was born that day is a gift of God to change the lives of all who put their faith and trust in him. The promise of God for all eternity, for all those who know him and love him, who will enjoy him forever. This is critical. This is real. The baby born in Bethlehem is the true king of the universe. And he deserves the worship of every living person. In fact, the Bible says all will eventually bow down before him. He is the one that deserves all of our reverence, that deserves all of our fidelity, all of our love, the true king. Let's adore him together today. Pray with me. Father, as we read this text, as we think on that, which for many of us is admittedly familiar, I pray, one, Father, that the familiarity would not distract us, deter us from from discerning the depth of this message. And I pray, Father, also we would see what's most critical, most important. Father, we would, we would not miss the message for the things that are less significant. But, Father, we might see Jesus revealed. And, Father, ultimately I pray that as the revelation of your love for us in Christ is given us through your word and by your spirit, that our response would be, would be worship. That we would respond to you through worship. Our hearts would turn to you and say, Father, thank you for loving us this way. And we bow before you with love and faithfulness and obedience together today. Father, show us Jesus. I pray in his name. Amen. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, 
and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, there's some important details in the story to make sure that we get it right, that, uh, that ground the truth of what happened here historically and, and also set the stage for what the story means theologically. So there's important facts that we need to see for just a few moments. They're not critical to the application of the story to your life, but they're important to know. One, it tells us where Jesus was born, born in Bethlehem. We get another biblical explanation, more verification of the prophetic promise of the place of Jesus' birth that I read about in Micah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. That there in Bethlehem, this particular Bethlehem, not to be confused with another Bethlehem or any other Bethlehem, is where Jesus was promised to be born. And if Jesus was born in Bethlehem, it means that he is in that line prophetically of David. He sits on the throne of King David. He's the promised fulfillment of the line of David. He's the Messiah. This doesn't just mean a place This means a place of promise. And so those who understood the Old Testament would know this is connected to all those other scriptures that tell us who the Messiah is going to be. He has to be born here. This is all part of those clues that reveal Jesus and his royal lineage, where he was born. It also tells us when he was born, roughly at least. There's some dispute, but it's only by a few years of the date of Jesus' birth. And it's all centered around the time of Herod, when Herod ruled, when Herod died. Depending on what you read and which commentaries and histories that you read, Herod died sometime around 4 or 5 B.C. We know that Jesus' birth would have been around this time, 3, 4, 5, would have been around the time of Jesus' birth. But it centers it in real time and place. We can look historically at the rule of Herod, and we can see during that period of time, towards the end of that time, was born the Messiah. And and by the way, just as an aside, we all know of, if you've heard the story in church many times in your life, you know Herod is called Herod the what? The great, just so that you know, because you might be wondering from our perspective, how in the world do you call someone the great who did what he's about to do? I mean, he's anything but a great man in our eyes, in our estimation, what greatness is. Greatness has nothing to do with his character, has nothing to do with his morality or his goodness towards his people. Greatness has only to do with one aspect of his rule and reign, which was rather unprecedented, and that is he was a great builder. In fact, the greatest thing that he built was the new temple that was work in Jesus' day. Many other cities and places. Herod was a great builder. He built great cities, great places, great monuments. Most of all, he built the temple, and hence that was his greatness. But Herod was an evil man. Herod was an insecure man. Herod killed members of his own family. One ancient historian said, you had been better off being one of Herod's pigs than being one of Herod's sons. 
That's the sort of man that Herod was. Not a great man in our estimation, but a powerful man. And then you see this statement, wise men from the east. Many of you are familiar with another translation of that that we use as magi. Um, I know a lot of hay has been made with the term wise men. And one of our favorite Christmas sayings, we see it on t-shirts during the holidays and it's on bumper stickers and many, many messages will be preached with this title, wise men still seek him. The correct translation, magi, is probably most correct. These weren't kings, contrary to what that popular, well, pseudo-popular, semi-popular old Christmas carol, We Three Kings, tells us. They're not kings. Likely, they were advisors to kings. But their occupation was astrology slash astronomy. And sometimes those lines, frequently those lines, were very blurred in the ancient world. They were pagans serving pagan kings. They were counselors to kings, but they used that counsel based on the wisdom they thought they could ascertain from the stars. Um, we should not perceive of these men as, as, as great religious figures, but rather as those that God rescues from, from darkness, from a dark pagan kingdom. And what they bring, they bring gifts. Now, we know that they brought three gifts by name, but that doesn't mean there were only three of them. In fact, it's pretty clear from this whole journey that there were enough of them that they at least got the attention of King Herod and his courts. There were likely hundreds, maybe a thousand people traveling in this, in this consort across the deserts who traveled for a long period of time, a large band of people. And we don't know their names from Scripture. I know history sometimes ascribes to them certain names. We don't know any of that. We don't know the number of them, and we don't know more than what this passage tells us, so we really shouldn't speculate. But we know they bring gifts, and the language of the gifts they bring makes you think back to some Old Testament passages, like when the Queen of Sheba brings gifts in 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 through 10, how the queen brought to Solomon gold and spices, and other Old Testament passages that point to visiting foreign dignitaries, bringing before kings these same sort of gifts. What's the imagery here? The imagery is they're recognizing in this child who is born, the one who is born king. Now again, I know there's a lot of speculation made about the meanings behind the gifts. Um, I, I think we need to be careful with those sort of speculations. And I've heard whole sermons spun off on those too. Why gold? Why frankincense? Why myrrh? What they symbolize? Remember that the Bible is not written to be this mysterious collection of clues um, little Easter eggs planted in there so that you might figure out what they mean when it doesn't tell you what it means. The Bible's, here's your theological word for today, it's perspicuous. That means it's able to be read and understood. And the Bible doesn't tell us the meaning behind these gifts other than what's obvious there, that they're recognizing in Jesus royalty, royalty to be worshipped. They said we saw his star. Again, you can speculate all you'd like about what sort of star this was. Many people have. Movies have been made about it. Videos produced. Commentaries written. We don't know what this was. Shooting star, a supernova, a comet, historically. It could have been any of those things or none of those things. What we know from Scripture is it was God-ordained, God-created, God-used for His purposes. It was miraculous. So if God chose to use something that might appear in other times and places, like a shooting star, a comet, or a supernova, to accomplish His purposes, so be it. But this is not coincidence. The Bible presents this as anything but coincidence. It's intentional, it's specific, and it's to achieve a very particular purpose. It also harkens back to the Old Testament text, Numbers chapter 24. 
Verses 17 through 19, Balaam had a prophecy about the rise of a star out of Jacob and a scepter out of Israel. A star out of Jacob and a scepter a king. And this is, again, painting to a picture of completion of those Old Testament promises, foreshadowing the coming of Jesus. Now, when you look at this story, and maybe sort of in human thinking, natural thinking, you're skeptical a bit. Okay, a star that moves itself over a location, that guides pagan astrologers slash astronomers to that location, all these things, it seems like a, like a myth, like a legend. Understand this, as Matthew is introducing his gospel, presenting the good news of King Jesus coming to the world for the salvation of the nations, it would not make sense if this were not historically rooted, not historically true, why in the world he would introduce that gospel with these sort of details, particularly to a culture who knew that in the Old Testament, the Bible explicitly prohibits astrology, the following of stars, um, these, these sort of guides to thinking and behavior, and also would not leave the witness of the Messiah to pagans from another country. Now, all those things give us an understanding of historical detail rooted in accuracy. Now, they saw the star. The wise men saw the star. They followed it there. They found Jesus, and they bowed and worshiped him and gave him gifts. These things we know from the text clearly. They saw a star. What should we see when we look at this text? Instead of just flying right over it, as you may have done this, uh, this past week in the beginning of your New Year's Christmas readings, I mean New Year's Bible readings, what should we see when we see the story of the unveiling of Jesus in Matthew chapter 2. First, I want you to see this. I want you to see a depiction of God himself. God the Father. God the one who seeks after the lost. God who is pursuing the lost. God who is working in this world to reveal himself and draw people to himself. Again, we take this text and we put a lot of focus on the wise men. And we'll credit them because wise men still seek him, we'll say. But we leave out the real star of the text, which is God himself, who is doing something in such a way so profoundly and powerfully that draws them to seek him. Remember, the magi, those wise men, they sought after the one who was seeking them. Who provided the star that guided them? Who picked their curiosity? Who spoke to them in a way that they would understand, that they could respond to? See, that's the nature of God. God who's working in this world, God who's working in the lives of people to get their attention in a way that they would hear, in a way that they would stop and listen, in a way that they might respond to. And for these men who built their lives around the study of the stars and who sought guidance and direction from them, God said, okay, if that's where your mind is and that's where your world is, then I'll speak right to that world. What does it take for God to speak to you? How is God getting your attention what, what is God doing in your life to say, look here, because you're missing me. You're not seeing me. Maybe that's pain or hardship or loss. Maybe it's opportunity. Maybe it's blessing. But God's speaking in a language that you and I can get so we'll hear him. <coughs> God himself revealed himself in a way that captured their attention. And it demanded a response. We've seen his star. And we've come to worship him, they said. Now, the star, again, whatever it was, as I said before, was a miraculous instrument in God's hands. If you want to for your own self, for your own benefits, you know, for your own 
uh, entertainment. I wouldn't exactly say edification because I don't know that it really matters, but if you want just to know because you're curious about such things, to search out, to research, to read the speculations about what it was, have at it. But the clear part of the message is this. God was doing something there that would point them to him. And while the Bible does forbid this astrology, as I said, Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 2, do not be terrified by signs in the sky, though nations are terrified by them. And in Isaiah, he mocks those who follow the stars, stargazers who make predictions month by month but cannot save themselves. God nonetheless used their curiosity, their fascination to reveal the Savior. But how did they know that their speculations were correct? What was the confirmation of their thoughts, of their speculation? What was it? It's when they got the scriptures. When it was revealed to them in Micah, chapter 5, that this is the place. When the clarity of the word is added to the attraction of the star, then they're convinced. This is the place. This is right. You're on the right track, and the word says so. And when they got this, something that drew them, something that confirmed for them the truth, spoke to them the truth, what did they do? They responded to it. They worshiped. And here's the thing about the Magi that I hope you'll see in this text. They actually worshiped better than they knew. They worshiped better than they knew. I mean, keep in mind, these are pagans. These are not Jewish scholars. This is a pre-Christian era, but these were pagans, plain and simple, from a pagan kingdom, from a dark world. And when, with some revelation, the fascination of a star that led them somewhere, the prophecies of a king being born, the realization of the truth of that, and they bow and worship, they're actually worshiping better than than they knew. Their desire exceeded their knowledge. Think about that for a moment. Their passion was greater than their information. Interestingly enough, the Sadducees and the Pharisees In this text, the Sadducees, those are the chief priests class. The Pharisees would have been the class of scribes. Both religious scholars, highly opposed to one another. They were the opposite. I mean, think about this for a moment. It just, it blows my mind to think that these group, this group of magi, pagan so-called wise men, were willing to travel thousands of miles, thousand miles or more, to explore the coming of the king But the scribes and Pharisees, who had all the Old Testament scriptures prophesying him, were not even willing to travel five miles. The distance between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Five miles. Most of us could walk five miles this afternoon. And they were not even willing to make that journey to see if Jesus were real. You see, in this story, we see that God is drawing pagans to himself. That's a great theme in Matthew. Remember, Matthew ends that way. It ends with the Great Commission to go into all the world with the gospel. Making disciples of all the nations. The universality of the gospel of Matthew is its clear aim. And here we see it being played out by the work of God. God is showing them even from the beginning, I will draw out the pagans to myself while you religious people who are indifferent towards me ignore it. I love this statement by Daniel Doriani and his commentary on Matthew. Christianity is not a religion for good people, quote-unquote. It's for sinners who listen when God calls. Sinners who listen when God calls. And that's the example here. They were the opposite. And here's the good news in all of this. 
And maybe this should turn our Christmas sermons upside down a bit. The focus really isn't on wise men seeking him. It's God seeking wise men. That's the good news. God is still seeking wise men. He's still drawing people to himself. He's still showing with signs and wonders. He's still revealing himself in ways that speak to you. He's still causing you to question things. Is this all there is to life? What would happen when I die? Surely there's more to this. What should I, should I be doing with my life? Who should be an authority over me? How should I be living? He's revealing himself and drawing you to himself and will confirm all that through his word. He's still doing that today. See the God who seeks sinners. Second, I want you to see God the Father, the true and only sovereign. Again, as we look at the players in this account, the figures in this, in this drama, uh, one of the primary ones is, is King Herod. King Herod fancied himself authoritative. We sometimes refer to kings as, as sovereigns, ones who have the right to rule. In this amazing account, there are many human actors, including King Herod, but there is one great cause, and that's God. Behind Herod, behind the Magi, there is one great cause affecting all of these things, and it's God himself. Now, you and I would acknowledge, I think, at least theoretically, that God is sovereign. That's something we would check off. Do you believe God is sovereign? We say, yes, I believe that's to be true. That to be true. Meaning he has the, the right and he has the, the power to do whatever he pleases, to do whatever he chooses to do, anything he decides to do. We see this echoing throughout Scripture. Men like Job, chapter 42, verse 2. I know that you can do all things, he says of God, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's sovereignty. Or Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that pleases him. That's sovereignty. When God decides to do a thing, he does it. He does all that he pleases. He doesn't try. He does. That's the sovereignty of God. But providence begins to include in that understanding some things that sovereignty doesn't. When we think of providence, we just think of God's right and power as king to do what he pleases. But providence begins to help us understand the character behind the one who does what he pleases. That God does what he does out of goodness and of love. Everything he does is wise and purposeful. This is, this is providence. Providence is purposeful sovereignty. God accomplishing his good purposes in the world in ways seen and unseen. God's providential hand. Isaiah 46, verse 10. My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I will. I will accomplish them all. Or 2 Kings 19, 25. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass. We see that being fulfilled in, in Micah chapter 5. I planned this from days of old. He who was of ancient times, of old, Speaking of the eternality of Christ, he now is being born. I will bring it to pass. So providence means this. It's the means that God employs. It's his hand at work, often behind the scenes, to carry his plans forward, guaranteeing that what he purposes is going to happen. It will be achieved. How does he do this? Well, he does this in concurrence with his creatures. He's not forcing them like robots, automatrons. Is King Herod morally culpable for his evil in Matthew chapter 2? emphatically so, absolutely so. But yet, even in that, God is working to accomplish his purposes. In his book, Grounded in the Faith, author Will Erisman writes this. At the same time, human agents are acting. God is acting 
in and through them. We are creatures with a will of our own. We make choices. Yet the causal power we exert is secondary. God's sovereign providence stands over and above our actions. He works out his will through the actions of human wills without violating the freedom of human will. What are some examples? We've seen in the biblical account already. Caesar Augustus determines to tax the world, the known world, the Roman world. He sets up a census to do so. What does that do? It draws Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. But it was God who promised and purposed Jesus to be born there. This all fits in with what God intended to do to make sure that people knew Jesus was the promised Messiah. Why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? Well, the obvious cause is the census made them go there. But there's a bigger cause, a primary one happening behind the scenes, the purposes of God. And what about Herod? Here we see Herod in this text. Herod is aging and ill, right? He's paranoid. He's seeking to eliminate any threats to his authority, to his throne. And so what does he do? He carries out this plan. And he's going to, as we'll see in in next week's message, he's going to call for the death of all the children, the, the male children, Hebrew male children in Bethlehem, two and under. But what does God do through this purpose? God's going to carry out a plan of redemption that harkens back to the promises made in the Old Testament about the Savior. We know he's going to do exactly what he said. This threat of Herod is going to cause Joseph to take his family down where? To Egypt. So they'll be safe. But even that was God's plan. Hosea 11 verse 1 says this. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And then this statement. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And it's those early soon-to-be Christians would study these texts and this promise of God, they begin to see in Christ, he's the one. This, this is the one. So how do we apply some of these things? Think about the responses to Jesus, to the revelation in Scripture, to the supernatural depiction or the supernatural direction to the place where Jesus was under the star. How should we respond? Well, consider what Herod did. To intentionally oppose God, as Herod did, that's insanity. That's the definition of insanity. I mean, Herod did this. When Herod consulted, and probably independently, because the Sadducees and Pharisees would not have consulted together, he gets with the Pharisees, what do you think? He gets with the Sadducees, what do you think? And they tell him, they show him the scriptures, it says what's here. When he realizes it, with information in his hand now, the Messiah, promised Messiah, probably is there. What should his response have been? I will go there too and worship him. But he intentionally opposes God. That's insanity. To think that this insignificant man on this insignificant throne can oppose the plans of the omnipotent God is insanity. To think that you and I can stand against God, that we can defy God, that that we can deny God his rightful place, that's not just wrong theologically. That doesn't just affect you emotionally. That's insanity. It's the worst thing anyone can do is to look at the true and living God and say, no, no, I reject you. I refuse you. You will not rule over me. Or what about the religious leaders? For all we can see, they just carelessly ignore it. I mean, again, they know he's there per the scriptures. They've got evidence now that someone has been born that they don't even go to check it out. They don't bother. To carelessly ignore God as the religious leaders did is suicide. There's life there. I've come that you might have life. And they ignored the source of life. Light has dawned in a dark world, and they didn't want to see the light. 
That's spiritual suicide. To have truth and information about Jesus and say, I don't care. That that doesn't affect me. It doesn't do anything for me. That's, that's, That's eternal suicide. But the magi, the wise men, to joyfully worship God as they did, that's life. That's life. To meet God and say, I will worship you. I will follow you. I will trust you. I will bow before you. That's where life begins. And not just a better life. I'm not talking about just improving your life. I'm talking about life, what you were created for, to know God and to enjoy him forever. That's life. And we'll know how much better that life is actually in the next. But I want you to see more than just God the Father. I want you to see God the Son. There's some deep and rich theology here that we wouldn't understand Matthew's gospel correctly if we didn't at least mention. When you see the story of Jesus going down into, down into Egypt, and you see the story of Herod warning the firstborn males, or the, not sorry, not firstborn, the young males to be killed, surely it reminds you of another story, right? You say, I think I've heard this somewhere before. I've read this somewhere before. This sounds like Old Testament. This sounds like Exodus. This sounds like Moses and Pharaoh. And what Matthew is intentionally doing by the inspiration of God's Spirit is showing us that Jesus is the new and better Moses. I'm the new and better Moses. All the stories that we have, by the way, in the Old Testament, the stories of Exodus are true. This is history. These aren't legends or myths. They're not analogies and metaphors. They're true stories, but they point to something that's even better than that true story points to, an even better true story. So just as Pharaoh slaughtered male Hebrew infants at the time of Moses, so he, Herod slaughters male Hebrew infants at the time of Jesus. And just as Moses delivered God's people from captivity and death, remember the plan of Pharaoh in the Exodus wasn't just to enslave them for their labor. Eventually it was to kill them. He was going to destroy them ultimately. He saves them for his own purposes in the Exodus. So Jesus delivers us from our slavery and our debt, but not to an earthly king, but to sin itself. And our penalty of judgment for that sin, which is death. And why does he do that? To save us for himself. Just as God delivered the people of Israel in the Exodus to make them a special people, so he delivers us in Christ. And that's what the biblical language says. Hope you're tracking with me. I know I'm throwing lots of information at you. Rapid fire. But consider what the scripture says of Israel in the Old Testament. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. That was the people of the Exodus. He said, I chose you and I saved you. You're my people now. Who are we? 1 Peter 2.9, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are his people now, called out of a dark kingdom. Our deliverance is better. Their deliverance was great. It is the great salvation story of the Old Testament. But our story is better. Our deliverance story in Christ is better. Yes, Egypt was a dark kingdom, an evil kingdom, a pagan, demonic kingdom even. And the false gods they worshipped were demonic powers. And the evil that they inflicted on those that they held captive and to those they were at odds with is legendary. But it's only a foreshadowing of the true dark spiritual kingdom of Satan, of which God delivers us from eternally. This is what he does. Our deliverance is better. And as great a deliverer as Moses was. And the right word would be Savior, but not capital S. 
small s, as great a deliverer as Moses was, Jesus is a far better Savior. Hebrews chapter 8 tells us all about it. Hebrews chapter 8 tells us all about it. I won't read the whole chapter. It's not very long, just 13 verses, I think. See in verse 5 that those things that Moses was doing, the building of tabernacle, the offering of sacrifices, etc., those were a copy and shadow of heavenly things, the Bible says. In verse 6, it says, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. As a covenant, he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. What's the better promise of the new covenant that Christ makes? The old covenant says, God will forgive you on the basis of sacrifice, atoning sacrifice. What's the new covenant promise? Verse 8, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. The new covenant is God changes us from the inside out. He changes hearts. He delivers us by Christ once and for all. And Hebrews 8 says the old covenant now becomes obsolete because the first one is so much better. You'll see again and again in the Gospel of Matthew this theme developing. Jesus is a better Savior. He's a better deliverer than Moses. And the new covenant is a far better covenant than the old. Put your faith and trust in him. And finally, what's most obvious, I think, in the text that we can't miss is this. God the Son, worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our worship. This far transcends just simply believing in the facts of Jesus. Yes, I believe Jesus. Yes, I believe he was born. Yes, I believe he died. Yes, I believe he rose. It's far more than just saying a, a get-out-of-hell-free prayer. It's the worship. It's the adoration. It's the submission to Jesus. Again, I told you they brought gifts that are worthy of a king. Worthy of a king. Um, gold, frankincense, myrrh. And as I put in your notes, commentators have speculated on the symbolic value. And I won't go there. I think sometimes that's a bit of a stretch. One good possibility, I think, that can be entertained is this. God, by his providential hand, was giving to Joseph and Mary the financial wherewithal to make the journey down into Egypt, to be able to afford a one- or two-year sojourn into Egypt, and to be able to come back. I don't know. Maybe in that sense, we could look at gold, frankincense, and myrrh instead of looking for deep symbolic value. Say, in the currency of the first century, they brought some really nice gift cards. And they had by their hands, secondary, through the providence of God, primary, the means to take care of themselves. Nonetheless, it is evidence of them seeing Jesus in a different light than the Pharisees did and the Sadducees did and certainly than King Herod did. And what did they do? They worshiped in response to the revelation that God had given them. Now, they had a lot of dots they had not connected. There were a lot of things they didn't know. A lot of pieces of the puzzle they had not yet put together. But that did not keep them responding from responding to what they did know. Now, hear what I'm saying because I think this is critical. They responded rightly to the revelation that they had. They didn't know a lot, but they sure worshipped hard. They worshipped better than they knew, as I said. Their passion exceeds their knowledge. I think... 
we are, for the most part, the opposite. I mean, if there's ever been a super information age, we're in it. I can say something in a message and you in real time can fact check me. You can check my interpretation of a text with your digital study Bible or quickly pull up a commentary. You can listen to some of the best sermons being preached and transcripts of some of the best sermons ever preached, just like that. Any question that you have, you can Google and find the answer at your fingertips. We know more, in a sense, or at least, let me back up, we have the capacity or the potential to know more than any generation before us, but we seem to care less. We have all this stuff that we could be reading and studying and knowing, but we don't care. We're not interested. We are sort of the mental, emotional equivalents of the Pharisees and Sadducees who aren't willing to walk five miles to meet Jesus. But there are a handful that will walk thousands. I mean, why is that? Why, though we have all of this at our fingertips, we're not excited by it? Why is we could learn so much about Jesus and the church and what God has done in the world and look forward to what's coming and it doesn't amaze us? It doesn't cause us to put down whatever we're doing, give up whatever we're holding, and say, you know what, I just want Jesus. It doesn't cause that in us. It calls that in them, but it doesn't cause that in us. Why is that? I mean, why is that? And I'm not asking you that question as some sort of hook because I'm about to give you the answer. I want you to wrestle with that question. Why is that? Why is it that it doesn't move us? You ever stop to ask yourself, why are we bored with the most amazing thing in the history of the universe? Let's look at their expression of worship just a bit more closely. I should go back to verse 10 for a second. When they saw the star, they, re they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Obviously, that's not the sort of language that you and I would employ. It's meant to emphasize how over the top their response was. Rejoice, exceedingly, great joy. I mean, the repetition there is quite intentional. And they, they were overwhelmed with this. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Now, keep in mind, it's not a baby in a manger anymore. They're in a house. They're not in a stable. But still, we're talking about a toddler, maybe? And these... Servants of kings, study, students of the stars, men filled with worldly wisdom, bow and worship. Then opening their treasures, they offer him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Verse 12, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed their own country by another way. Now, what, what should true worship look like for us? What can we learn from people who knew a lot less but did a lot more than we do with worship. True worship should humble us and should exalt Jesus. That's the formula. If there is a formula, I hate to use that word. I'm hesitant to use that word. But that's the equation of true worship. Now, I, and I know my, my, my time is a bit pressed, but I want you to hear this this morning. So much of what passes 
in our churches today as, as worship services, particularly when it comes to messages preached, does the exact opposite. We take these texts that are so filled with the glory of God, so filled with the revelation of God in Christ, so filled with the magnificent and the amazing and the eternal. Look at God, be amazed, love him and worship him. And we flip that thing upside down and we make it all about us. We make it all about us. And Jesus becomes just an object lesson or a tool in your self-help tool belt. And the opposite ought to take place. We ought to be humbled. We stand before a king, and he ought to be exalted. If we're doing worship in any way close to right, the songs that we sing and the prayers that we pray and the scriptures that we read and the conversations that we have together ought to be lifting up Jesus. And I apologize, but I'm not sorry that you may come on a Sunday morning and you may not get that self-help that you need to deal with whatever problem you're dealing with or face whatever issue you're facing with or fix whatever needs broken as you walk out this door. Those things are downstream things from the main thing, that we come before God and glorify him as God. You are God and there is no other. True worship ought to also elicit something from us. And no, I'm not going to suddenly switch gears into, into some sort of prosperity teaching here. If you're truly worshiping, you're going to give your gifts. No, that's not what I'm saying. But it's not what I'm not saying either. I'm saying if we truly worship him, there's a release of the stuff that we have that we say, what does this stuff mean? What does this stuff matter in light of you? What do you require of me? What could I give to you? And think of some of the expressions of worship that were not condemned, but were praised in the scripture. A woman washes Jesus' feet with her hair and pours out expensive ointment, perfume all over it. And people are going, are you crazy? Look how much that cost. The hypocrite among them said, so you know how many people could be fed with that? And it was an extravagant expression of worship. They're giving this two-year-old gold and frankincense and myrrh. What do we give up? But see, again, we switch the whole thing. We flip the whole thing around. What can I get? What have you got for me? What am I going to get from you today? And we come to Jesus like some giant vending machine. Dispense this. Give me that. Or a magic lantern we rub or we say the right phrase and we get these things from. What is he asking from you? What can I give to a king? My life, my attention, my priorities, my values, my time, my money, whatever it may be. But you know what true worship ought also to do? It ought to bring you joy. It ought to bring you joy. Because true worship is the ultimate recalibrator of your mind and your heart. So now in worship, I, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with all this stuff and I'm bringing all this mess to the table and I got all these issues and stresses and things I got to do when I leave here and things are piling up on me this week or this month or this year or longer. But true worship recalibrates my mind and my heart because I'm standing before the sovereign God to whom all things are possible, who hears our prayers, who loves us like a father. He puts everything in perspective. Man, this world is so messed up, but his promises are so perfect. They're so good. And I should have added this to your notes, but I didn't. But I do now. I have that prerogative. I would add to this obedience. True worship ought to elicit obedience. We don't worship the king of the universe and then not do what he says. That's ludicrous. I mean, again, I know it's implied in the text. They finish this moment of, of, of worship. Make of it what you will. 
But then hearing from God, which is implicit in the next statement, in verse 12, because that's who spoke to them in the first dream, directing them there, and now speaks to them here, hearing in a dream, or spoke to them in the vision of the star, now speaks to them in the dream, tells them go another way. And they don't. They don't go the way. They listen. They obey. There's obedience. There's a response that says, okay, I yield. I yield to you. What's our response? What's our rightful response? I'm going to ask our deacons who are preparing our Lord's Supper this morning. Um, if you'll go ahead and get the elements ready for us. In our act of worship today, our act of response to the Lord today is going to be in sharing the bread and cup symbolic in these trays. And I'm going to ask as you hold that bread and cup just for a moment. We'll share in the eating and drinking of those together. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, who's come today to worship him, I invite you to share in the Lord's table with us. Commune with us around this symbolic table. Join with us as brothers and sisters as we acknowledge Christ. If you're not a Christian yet, I would encourage you just to abstain. Just let it pass by. There's no offense in that to us and hope you'll feel none. But as you do, just ponder, consider what's symbolic and what we're about to do together today. As we take the bread and take the cup today, we're reminded of Christ. We're retelling in a, in a simple way, uh, but a rather profound way, and certainly a timeless way, at least timeless in the history of the church, of the gospel. What has God done to make us his special people? What has God done to deliver us? In what way has Jesus saved us? How has he accomplished his purposes of salvation? What does it mean that he is a great savior and that we are the gratefully saved? Well, he did that through himself. And this cup and the little piece of bread attached is symbolic of Christ himself. Christ who came into the world to save sinners, religious and pagan, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, children, old folks, all those who would hear the message and respond to it. All those who would call and they would say yes. Just like these wise men. All those to whom he would reveal himself and they would come and bow. Jesus does that with his own body. He became one of us. He took the temptations of all of us. He lived perfectly defeating Satan at the point of temptation for the sake of us so that he could die as a sacrifice holy enough to satisfy God for us. And he was raised, demonstrating that he is God. He is the ultimate fulfillment of every promise of God. And he has the ability to do exactly what he says, to give life to all those who believe in him. I am the resurrection and the life, he said. Whoever believes in me will live and never die. Do you believe this? In the resurrection, we have life given to us. It's his body. And we're reminded of this cup of his blood. The payment for our sins. It's what makes Hebrews chapter 8 true. Why the covenant is better. Why the promise we have is better. Why he's a better redeemer than Moses. Moses could give us the symbol of redemption in tabernacle, later in temple. Jesus gives the fulfillment of it. Because he's the once and final sacrifice. As God made man, 
fully God, fully man, he alone has the capacity to take on the sins of all of us. He alone has the holiness to justify all of us. He has the power to save all of us. And it's through his blood that our sins are paid for if we'll put our faith and trust in him. And so then we become his covenant people. And this covenant's better than the old because this covenant is made and kept by him for now, for tomorrow, for forever, for all those who are his. This is what we declare. This is who we worship, Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, our act of worship today is to acknowledge and to receive. To hear and, and to believe. To understand and to trust. To see you and to yield to you. To find our, our joy in you that can't be taken from us by this world. To say to you, what would you have from us? What could we possibly give in exchange for the soul that you've purchased? To humbly recognize we could not save ourselves. That's why you had to come. We could not. We could not redeem ourselves. We could not deliver ourselves. We could not undo ourselves. But you came to give new life. And so we exalt you, King Jesus. We're humbled. And Father, I pray that as we receive this today, we recognize what has been done. What even now is being done, that you are still the sovereign. You work in perfect goodness towards those who belong to you. And one day, our eyes will confirm what our hearts already know. We're going to see you. We're going to see you. And we declare that truth as well. Jesus who came. Jesus who rules and reigns today. Jesus who will come again. We acknowledge these great truths. This is our hope. This is why we worship. So we thank you for your body given for us on the cross. We thank you for your blood, the full and complete payment for our sin. We thank you for our salvation and for you, our great Savior. We love you and we praise you, King Jesus. In your name, amen.